2: and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Finerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, a tech double play. Intel and IBM both on the move after reporting results will break down the after-hours action straight ahead. Plus, retail ripping. Names like Dillard's, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Kohl's all posting big gains. We're shopping for opportunity in this retail rebound. And later, go long or go home. That could be the new battle cry in the bond market. We're breaking down what a 50-year U.S. Treasury could mean for your money. We kick things off with those after-hours movers, and Intel and IBM both lower on earnings as their calls kick off. We've got full team coverage standing by to break down the numbers. Deidre Bosa standing by in IBM, but we start with Josh Lipton and more on Intel's big quarter. Josh.
3: So Melissa, remember heading into this print that stock had rally. Intel was up about 20% year to date. Clearly some investors excited about Pat Gelsinger taking the reins at the chip giant. Though now you see it slipping in the after hours. If you look at the print, beats on the bottom and the top, the Q1 forecast was upbeat relative to expectations. Segments, CCG, chips for PCs, 10.9 billion. DCG, chips for servers, 6.1 billion. Both better than expected. I did check in with tech analyst Patrick Moorhead of More Insights and Strategy. Intel crushed Q4, he says, exceeding guidance significantly. It likely gained market share in the PC market, just judging by the report, though likely lost market share in servers, he says, though the data center business better than expected in the quarter. So why is the stock lower here, at least initially? Patrick's saying investors wanted more color on those manufacturing challenges at the chip giant that you all have talked so much about, how they are being addressed, what's the game plan. But we did not see those details, at least in the press release. Patrick's saying investors also might have wanted to see annual guidance from Intel. We didn't get that either, but that conference call is just getting underway right now. Be watching for headlines and bring bring them to you as they come. Melissa, back to you.
2: All right, Josh, thank you, Josh Lifton. Josh brings up a great point, as he normally does, Guy, when he covers these earnings, and that is... Is it, it, we still don't know about the major problem that has plagued Intel for weeks now and that is the question about manufacturing the edge that it had lost under Bob Swan as well as his predecessor probably does any of, of the results even though according to this analyst they crush the quarter do the results change any of that
4: it did crush the quarter I mean Dan and I were talking before the show you look at the revenue beat look at the revenue guide for the first quarter Look at the margin beat, and year-over-year margin's actually sort of in line. It's, it's actually a pretty remarkable quarter, given what they've told us the last two or three quarters. In my opinion, reasons it's down is because the stock has basically gone from 47 to 63 in a straight line. And kudos to Dan Nathan, who started talking about this a few weeks ago when it was at that 48-49 level. And here we are today. B. Icebreaker did an options uh, piece on it last night. I think this just traded up to the June high. If you go back and look, it's had a huge run. To your point, although it's a great quarter, there's no real clarity in terms of the manufacturing issues. My sense is you take profits here mm-hmm. and look to get back into these other names, like the AMDs that it's come off from $100. And, and even like a Lamb Research, by the way, which had a huge move to the upside yesterday in reverse. So I think they're better chip names. I think you take the money and run in Intel.
2: And this is Bob Swan's Final quarter as CEO, Karen, and what do we typically expect when a new CEO comes in? Is he going to come in and give guidance that's rosy? Probably not. Well, probably not.
5: His swan song, I guess. For the new <laughs> CEO, though, I think that. Oh. Um, it was a pun I just couldn't resist. I think for the new CEO, though, you and I always talk about kitchen sink. And we, it's hard to kitchen sink when you have a quarter as good as this one, but they do have this very giant existential question. And that could, depending on how he decides to move forward, outsourcing or not, or how much, uh, that could end up being a big kitchen sink. But I think what Guy said is the most important thing. The stock's gone from 47 to actually, the news seemed to have leaked a few minutes before the close, and the stock was up a buck and change in the last very few minutes. So it's kind of flattish. Um, So that's more of a move than... Uh, what the quarter means, that 47 to 62. I agree with Guy. If you if you were in it for that big run, it's okay to take some profit here.
2: Tim, you were in it for that big run, weren't you? And you're still in it now. What questions do you have?
6: (laughs) I I was in it for a move lower too, Mel, uh, full (laughs) disclosure. But but I, I part of part of my view is let's let's not forget this is the, the reason that, that I think I've ridden through both sides of the cycle is it was a record year in, on revenue for Intel. I know it wasn't a year uh, where they necessarily gained ground. They lost ground to AMD, to NVIDIA. I know that. Um, but when you consider their positioning, data center was better. Um, and when you consider where you know, at least they gave some updates on 10 nanometer, uh, four times the supply, seven nanometer progress. And. and but the relationship with Taiwan Semi isn't necessarily adversarial. It's, it's maybe synergistic. So a uh, big salute to Dan Loeb in third point, because they're up 40 percent or so since at least this was announced and maybe even a bit more than that. Uh, and, and that shows where both activism and, and obviously positioning is very important.
2: Dan, what are your thoughts on, on the stock, given the context of the quarter?
7: Yeah, so Tim just mentioned that those were record revenues, $77 billion for the year. Um, I think what's really interesting, that year, the stock sold off close to 20% in 2020. And expectations for 2021 are that sales are going to decline 10% and that earnings are going to decline. Um, so expectations are not har- uh, high. I saw that graphic that you guys were just posting up there. 34% of Wall Street analysts rate this stock a buy. So you can take profits here at 61 61- 62, it's up from about 45 just in the last couple months or so. But make no mistake, if they do get some things sorted out, if they do the outsourcing, if this new CEO comes in and doesn't actually need to kitchen sink because expectations are so low, you will see a re rating of this stock. So to me, I see the opportunity, um, you know, if you do see the stock pull back. In the, the mid 50s or so, I think it gets bought there. And if you look at that downtrend that had been in place from the January 2020 highs, that's where your support is. That's where the 200 day moving average is. I really don't see it below 53 anytime soon when you consider all the levers that they have to pull and the incentives for the new CEO. Uh,
2: in terms of um, outsourcing, outsourcing, is that the magic word guy that will turn this stock on the conference call? But they are exploring the possibility of outsourcing manufacturing of some of their chips.
4: It's been brought up, though. I mean, unless I'm sorely mistaken, which I tend to be. I mean, we've, we've heard that sort of mentioned before. <laughs> Maybe that's a lot of part of this move. I mean, listen, I, I'm sort of in Karen and Dan's camp. I mean, if that's brought up and the stock does nothing, I think that's your tell. So I'm more inclined to say you've had this huge run. Uh, I don't know what more they can say that's going to get you to the next level. It's going to get that next leg higher. You've had the run. Uh, Valuation's always been reasonable. Nothing's changed on that front. It just comes down to, you know, what's the growth rate here? And they're just getting swamped by some of their competitors. And I I think
6: I'm inclined to be taking profits at these levels. And I also just want to point out the move in semiconductors overall, of which Intel um, in this last run hasn't been a laggard, but has been a laggard, as we've just talked about for the last year. And the cyclicality and the exposure that they have, um, look, at, look at the demand coming out of the auto sector. Obviously, we know what's going on with gaming uh, and, and, and even PCs, which we saw around the holidays. And I don't think that demand has is, is gone bye-bye. So, Um, Intel is an underperformer as at least a a valuation argument with mega cap tech at a time when people have been rotating back there. I, I wouldn't get too far away from this name.
2: I mentioned the outsourcing because Dan Loeb had mentioned in his letter uh, when he was going active in Intel that he would like to see Intel um, regain the manufacturing edge it had had, which would imply that Intel would keep the manufacturing in-house uh, and on-premises. Karen, what's your sense? You know, you know Dan Loeb and how he operates. After a quarter like this, after a run like this, mission accomplished?
5: Well, I couldn't fault him to say mission accomplished, but, you know, he runs an enormous amount of money. He takes big bets. And um, and so he's got to be thinking there's a lot of upside. Um, And I think probably maybe even more than we've seen already. I'll bet it happened a lot quicker than he thought, which makes me wonder, was some of this in process before we saw him get active? I'm not sure about that. Um, And I'm not sure how much he'll need to update us on what he does other than 13 Fs, because I don't believe he has a 13 D. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But um, I I don't know about this big question of outsourcing or not. I think there was not a lot of confidence that Swan could do it successfully. So maybe if the new CEO can, that's a more bullish case for the store for the stock.
2: all right. Again, the conference call is underway. We'll uh, keep you posted on anything that develops out of it. Meantime, let's turn to IBM. That stock is dropping decisively after reporting results. D Bosa has got the latest. D. Hey,
0: Melissa, CEO Arvind Krishnan just kicking off the call, and he really started by reiterating his focus on hybrid cloud and AI capabilities. He says that investors will start to see that showing up in results in 2021. But he also seemed to hedge that a little bit, saying that the operating environment will remain difficult The last quarter, though, Melissa, was another lackluster one from Big Blue. Its decline of more than 6% in the after hours is worth about 60 points on the Dow. Investors, they're responding to yet another quarter, yet another year of declining revenue. In fact, in eight of the last nine years, IBM has seen its revenue decline on an annualized basis. The company, though, says that it will grow in fiscal 2021. And that is really the first glimpse of guidance the street has seen from IBM. Since last April, the company very light on details or specific numbers, though. So we're listening out for that on the call. So analysts are likely wondering how it gets there to growing revenue and how much will have to do with the spinoff of its legacy business. Now, under Krishna, IBM has made more acquisitions and it is increasing its CapEx spending after years of buybacks that critics have argued made IBM more of an accounting story than a tech story. Krishna is betting everything on that hybrid cloud and the Red Hat acquisition, but so far investors they remain skeptical. Shares have lagged the broader markets, not just tech, over the last one, two, five years. Back to you.
2: Debo, thanks. Deja Brosa on IBM. Uh, Dan Nathan, what do you mean the, the one thing that is consistent about IBM is that it seems to disappoint. <laughs> uh, and here we are yet again.
7: Yeah, I mean, you just throw all the worst trends in technology and you mash them up together and and you have IBM and they they made that acquisition of Red Hat and, and, you know, they have a CEO that people feel confident about. Uh, I think they'd probably feel a lot more confident if he was running another company that that actually was was growing. I mean, look at those cloud numbers. They're just not even that good. They're up 10 percent or something like that. So to me, I I just think this is kind of dead money. I, I, you know, it's not for me. How's that?
2: Um, Just to play the other side of it, though, I mean, Guy, by the end of 2021, after they complete this spinoff, IBM's going to look like a very different company. It's going to be a company focused on hybrid cloud and AI, and theoretically, that's exactly where you want to be.
4: Yeah, it's exactly where you want to be. But to Dan's point, 10% cloud growth, I mean, you hear 10% growth, you say, oh, wow, and then you look at these other companies like Salesforce and (laughs) uh, Web Services and some of the other in Microsoft, and you say, wait a second, 10% is a joke, pardon me. I think the only thing you have going for, and now I'm gonna, you know, now I'm gonna be Goldman-centric, and I'm gonna get added by just about everybody, is the fact that Gary Cohn uh, is on board at IBM. And I gotta tell you something, you want somebody to figure something out, he's your guy. So, you know, down here at these levels, it's probably not the right point, but if you look, IBM's been between 115 and 135, seemingly, for the last year and a half. And as we get closer to you know, the high teens, Maybe you take a flyer on IBM thinking that maybe they, you know, maybe this is as bad as it gets as they sort of turn the page, hopefully turn the page.
2: Karen, you're a value investor. Is there value here, particularly before a transformational transaction that will happen by the end of this year?
5: Yeah, well, like you said, I mean, every quarter they seem to have this sort of deja vu all over again. We have the same sort of disappointing quarter. I mean, it's, the P.E. Yo, the- is inexpensive. It absolutely should be. It absolutely should be inexpensive with, you know, the historical misses. So for me, you know, being in, in fourth place, fifth place, whatever, sixth place, I don't even know, in cloud isn't, isn't interesting enough to have it be a
2: value play. Tim, are you another bear on this one? <laughs>
6: Uh, no, and first of all, I'm, I'm a total bull on KFON's use of Yogi Berra uh, euphemisms over and over again <laughs> on this show. It's, it's tremendous. And, and, and I think with IBM, why are we not talking about the 25% move uh, in, in the stock and the run higher into numbers like we did with Intel? I mean, this was a very big rebound story for a company that doesn't have. Uh, I think, as much beta to the overall market, especially because of all the growth reasons we're talking about. But um, cognitive cloud was part of the disappointment here in software. And and that was actually up last quarter and part of the surprise. I I, I think this is a ship that we've talked about how slow it turns. Um, And and I think, you know, when you see a fork in the road, you take it. And and I think that's what IBM's doing.
2: Here's a a would you rather Royale (laughs) in terms of betting on a turnaround. Intel or IBM, Dan Nathan?
7: Uh, Intel, no doubt about it. I mean, you're going to have this management transition. You have a a very clear focus on what was wrong and how to gain back that market share. You have valuation support. You have a good balance sheet. You have really um, constructive activists there. So to me, I'd much rather uh, Intel.
2: Guy, but IBM's got Gary Cohn. So same question to you. Yeah, and i will (laughs) just...
4: and i'll just take i'll just take ibm just to get dan mad at me because i like salty dan better than i like easy dan but no i mean ibm listen they're they're, they're getting into the right businesses they're not doing a particularly good job but if they can somehow figure out to get decent growth rates you know not akin to the close you are talking about a stock that could go higher from here so i'll play the ibm card on this one mel all
2: right uh, again the conference calls underway we'll keep you posted on all the news coming out of them meantime coming up Ford shares kicking into overdrive. The stock cruising to a two and a half year high. We will tell you how our traders are playing the big breakout. Plus, there's something brewing in bond land. We'll break down all the chatter around a 50 year treasury note, what it could mean for the yield curve and your money. But first, the promising news out of Eli Lilly today that sent that stock to a new all time high. The full details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money Today, marking a sobering milestone here in the U.S. It has been exactly one year since the CDC reported the first case of coronavirus in America. In that time, the virus has killed more than 400,000 people. President Biden signing a series of executive orders within the past two hours to tackle the growing outbreak. And we got some promising news today out of drug maker Eli Lilly. Let's get to Meg Terrell with the details. Hey, Meg.
8: Hey, Melissa. Well, we know that Eli Lilly's antibody drug is cleared for people who were recently diagnosed with COVID who are at high risk of being hospitalized and having severe effects from the disease. But Lilly was also testing this drug as a preventive measure and specifically did that in nursing homes where some of the most vulnerable people to COVID live and work. Uh, And what they found is that in nursing homes with outbreaks among residents there, uh, when they gave them the antibody, they lowered the risk of getting COVID by as much as 80%. Now, of course, we are trying to roll out vaccines to nursing homes right now. So we talked with Lilly's chief scientific officer, Dr. Dan Skowronski today about what role these antibody drugs as a preventive measure could play. Here's what he told us.
4: What we envision is uh, really a a rapid response in these facilities where this is not a replacement for vaccination. It's not a a choice. Uh, It's for people who haven't been vaccinated where there is an outbreak happening uh, and there's other residents or staff that are infected. um, And now this could uh, potentially offer uh, an immediate response uh, to that outgoing
9: outbreak.
8: Now, Mel, they would have to take this to the FDA potentially to get clearance in this setting. But we have already seen these drugs from both Eli Lilly and Regeneron really being underutilized in the setting where they're cleared so far, not really meeting expectations for what people hope they'd be able to accomplish in this pandemic. Mel?
2: Yeah, we've spoken to uh, Dr. Schleifer about that specifically, Meg. Um, About this, how should we think about that 80 percent reduction uh, in comparison to the 90 percent efficacy rate of vaccines?
8: Oh, that's a really interesting uh, point you make there. We haven't seen the actual hard numbers of this Lilly trial. What we got was a press release. So we don't know exactly how many people, you know, ended up getting sick and exactly how many people were protected. Um, But 95 percent obviously sounds better than 80 percent. But if there's some reason that you don't have a group of people who are vaccinated, you could. potentially use these antibodies right away to protect these folks and you get the antibodies immediately. You're not waiting for that immune response to kick in after a week or two. So that is where they're saying the benefit could
2: potentially be. Right. I mean, that's more effective than a flu vaccine in preventing the flu. Um, Meg, thank you. (laughs) Always appreciate it. Meg Terrell. Um, as we noted, Eli Lilly shares hitting a new all time high today in the back of this news. Very good news, Guy Adami. Another big step in the fight against the coronavirus and potentially the reopening of this economy.
4: It's great. It's, it's, it's fantastic news. I mean, I understand why Eli Lilly is higher. I totally get it and probably should be. Here's the questions you have to ask yourself about Eli Lilly. Into earnings on January 29th, I believe, you know, at 25 times or so next year's numbers, is it getting expensive? Uh, probably a little bit. You have maybe 12% EPS growth, which I understand you know, is not necessarily uh, the reason not to own it, but it is getting expensive on valuation basis. So I'm inclined to take profits in Lilly here into earnings. Bristol-Myers is another one you want to watch. Traded up to 68, failed, major double top, and third, and I just say this not to be gratuitous, but I don't know as a network what we've been able to do without Meg Terrell over the last year you think about what she's done and just just covering this specific topic it's extraordinary so i think it's worth mentioning again
2: i, I think i speak on behalf of the other traders when i say plus four um, i'm seconding that motion for sure um, karen finerman when you hear about this do you think about yes. your position let's say in a live nation and think i'm closer to that other side mm-hmm. here
5: Yeah. Although that stock has already recovered fully. Uh, It's cured. It seems to be. But what I do think about is a (laughs) CVS. Right. I do think that, you know, looking for value as we maybe have this rotation out of growth into value. In addition, if this is one of the ways that we get the vaccine out there, that's great for CVS to have people coming through the store and used to coming back to the store. So I think that's sort of an interesting way to play it as well.
2: Yeah. Uh, Tim.
6: I don't think that the story in Lilly is really, you know, you're not buying it on today's news. And everyone's pointed out how how fantastic this news especially in combination with vaccines. It's a pipeline. It's margin expansion. Again, their exposure to to Alzheimer's. uh, And I think that's part of why the stock's up almost 50 percent since November. Uh, So back to Guy's tactical approach. What do you want to do with it in the numbers I, I think if you look at a lot of the mega cap pharma names uh, after doing almost nothing you're starting to see some of these stocks break out and I, I would be reluctant to give up too soon. You know,
7: it, it's pretty interesting, Mel, when you look at these two companies, um, you look at Lilly and you look at Pfizer, and we know where Pfizer was as it relates to the vaccine. These are both basically $200 billion market cap companies. And for some reason, and Guy nailed it with the Pfizer, when it broke out above 40, it got to maybe 43 for just a brief um, couple days or so, and then sold off. And here we are below 37 bucks, And so it's just interesting to me, all the reasons that Tim just named why he likes Lilly, Um, They better be pretty important rather than just this one um, drug, because I don't understand why Lilly could stay up here. But Pfizer can't. Um, You know, maybe it's just me
6: asking the
2: question. Tim, do you have an answer to that?
6: Yeah, what I said. And he's he's agreeing with what I said. Ultimately, they've got a pipeline. They've got a pipeline. It's not the the, the re-rating of the stock, if there has been one, is not really about COVID-19. Uh, treatment right.
2: Coming up, investors hoping to play the long game in the bond market may just get their chance. Find out what Janet Yellen said that could rock the Treasury trade. Plus, retail back in vogue today. We'll tell you what's got investors shopping for opportunity in this space. Don't go anywhere. More fast money after this break. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. Welcome back to Fast Money. Go long or go home. That could be the new rally cry in the bond market after President Biden's Treasury Secretary pick reopened the debate on a 50-year Treasury note. At a confirmation hearing on Tuesday, Janet Yellen said she'd be very pleased to look at issuing long-term debt to help pay America's bills. Check out the reaction to those comments that day. The spread between the five and the 30-year Treasuries spiking on the remarks. So um, we thought we had to bring in Steve Leesman to get to the bottom of this. Steve, good to see you. Thanks for, thanks for joining us this evening. Um, we, we talked a little bit about this offline yesterday, and, and in my simplistic thinking, I immediately thought that previous buyers or current holders of 10- and 30-year debt would then migrate to the 50-year, and that would cause a yield curve to spike. What do you say to that, that argument?
1: No, I would never say you're thinking it's simplistic, Melissa. That's the first thing. Um, I, I don't think you're wrong about that, but there's an awful lot that would be going on here. One is that, you know, where would the actual demand come from? Would it come from the 20- and 30-year end of the spectrum? Would it migrate over to the 50? Uh, would it come from the 10-year the, the end of the spectrum? Um, and, and what would it be relative to what the government would otherwise be putting out? In other words, uh, the government has an awful lot of debt to finance. Uh, would the introduction of a 50 mean that there would actually be less issuance in the 10-year, and more on the long end. But before I do that, Melissa, before we uh, go on, I just want to show you uh, why it would make sense for the government to issue a 50. Do you know those commercials where they say, you know, order one of these flashlights and get the second one free? Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the way it is with the long end of the curve right now. The market is giving the government 10 years for less and less money. So take a look at this chart that I put together. It costs the government 105 basis points, or it offers 105 basis points, to issue the first 10 years. The second 10 years, in other words, between the 10 and the 20, is 57 basis points. Between the 20 and 30 is 20 basis points, so you practically get the last 10 years or the third flashlight almost comes for free. So that's why Janet Yellen is taught and others are looking at it. By the way, they're going crazy with these things, issuing these things throughout Latin America and South America, issuing 50 year notes. Uh, So the idea would be now it should be the other way around. Of course, the uh, long end should be costing you more, but either because the Fed is involved or because there's uh, just a huge demand for liquidity, uh, sorry, for, for duration And reaching for the long end and reaching for yield, it goes the other way than how it otherwise should.
5: Steve, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Let me just ask you something. If they were to sort of test the waters with a 50-year, if the Treasury were to do that, would the Fed not buy on that just to see what other kind of demand showed up? Or would they want to go along and show that there is demand for it?
1: I think that's an excellent question, Karen. I don't honestly know the answer to that. I do know that, that Steve Mnuchin, the uh, former Treasury, secretary, was pretty hot and heavy to issue a 50, but he found out from dealers that were concerned about liquidity. They were afraid that there wouldn't be a big enough of an issuance or enough demand and enough liquidity to continue making it a robust part of the tenor of what the uh, U.S. government issues. So it's unclear, and I would think that your idea, Karen, about that the Fed should operate, but I don't think, Karen the Treasury would go forward without pretty good assurance that uh, both uh, the end users and the dealer community would be behind such an issuance. Hey, Steve, it's Tim. It, so even though moving way out the
6: maturity curve when the deficits are huge seems like the golden road to unlimited devotion, um, I, I think you've got a case <laughs> with a $21 trillion Treasury market that 10 to $15 billion a year in 50-year uh, supply would, wouldn't mean anything um, and for you know, 10 to 20 years before there was enough in supply. Does, does that make sense to you? Because we've heard about this before, yeah. and, and yet nothing ever happens.
1: That's right. Uh, Tim, I just want to throw something back at you. You're more of the international guy on the panel here. Are you at all dipping your toe into some of these foreign bonds here at the 50-year tenor? I, I mean, I don't know if that's in your bailiwick or your portfolio, but I'd be interested because there seems to be, I think it was, there was a Mexican issuance of 50s and Mexico. it was oversubscribed yeah. uh, by more than three to one
6: Mexico uh, and even you know Saudi Arabia and and if you think about the negative real rates uh, you know emerging markets for even for all their glory um, you have even deeper negative real rate territory I, I think risk reward is, is not good um, so chasing long duration I don't have to do that. Uh, in, in my portfolio, so uh, I've avoided it. But, but clearly, I think that's been part of the inspiration between if, if these less, uh, you know, l- less creditworthy sovereigns are able to issue so easily, why shouldn't we when our deficit is ballooning?
2: Steve, one last question for you. Um, as we yeah. had mentioned before, it seems like uh, many Treasury secretaries have gone down this road. What are the odds, do you think, that Janet Yellen pulls it off, given the environment?
1: You know, looking at that chart, which I, I made today, I don't normally follow those spreads across 10-year horizons. It looks mighty attractive, you know, and, and uh, you know, call up that chart. If you look at it, you know, if they don't refinance it or if they don't do a 20 or a 30 or a 50, you know, you look at it again. Um, if you keep it the same, then the next time you go around, it costs you 105. But if you take out a 20. It only cost you 57 for that next 10 So I don't know, uh, Melissa. I think it's awfully attractive. Mm-hmm. I- I'm not 100% sure what the dealer's problem is with it. I think what Tim was talking about was really interesting, that, you know, you can establish a market in this as a regular yeah. part of it. And you might as well, sort of as Karen suggested, you might as well try. So. Um, there's a pretty good logic behind it. And I need to understand more about why the dealers are skittish of it. I talked to a couple today who were, who were a little bit concerned about the liquidity yeah. in that market.
2: And let us know what you find out about the thinking about the impact to the yield curve. We'd be interested in that as well. Steve, good to see you. Thank you, You're as good. always. Steve Leistman. Uh, Guy Adami, what, what do you think about all of this?
4: I think it's how you package it. You know, you think about what happened seventy or so years ago, war bonds. You think about how you know a country sort of was able to wrap their head around it and and get behind something that made sense. I mean, again, I, I don't do this for a living, but I would say if you if you package this as you know fifty-year COVID bonds and open it up, I mean, maybe the demand would be such that it would make sense. I, again, it's all in the packaging to me with a, with a uh, security of this uh, of this duration, if that you know if that makes makes any sense yeah. whatsoever.
2: I've always thought a recovery bond would be an easy sell out there. Um, Dan, you had a really interesting take uh, in terms of what this could mean and the implications of this to tax policy.
7: Well, thanks. Two simple thinkers, Mel. Simple, Dan. I, I mean, my, my <laughs> takeaway was that, you know, Yellen bringing this up kind of signifies the fact that maybe the Biden administration, which really will only have in the next two years, one ability to push through some big legislative sort of um, initiative, and it won't be taxes. They will not be able to kind of raise taxes. So why not borrow at 50 years at what the 30 years at 1.83 or something like that? Why not borrow like that and get in a ton of money so you can actually then go and do the infrastructure and the fiscal. We know that the Fed has just just tacked on $3 trillion under their balance sheet. We know the Treasury is operating um, at massive deficits. So my takeaway is they're not going to get the taxes in the next couple of years.
2: All right. We've got a lot more fast money coming your way. Here's what's coming up next.
1: Break out your credit card. We're hitting them all. Retailers ripping higher in today's session. Find out if you should beg any of these names. And later, Ford hits the gas. The stock having its best week since June. How our traders are playing the big breakout. Buckle up. There's much more Fast Money
3: after this quick break.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the big rally in some retail names today. Kohl's, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Dillard's all posting big gains. American Eagle also higher after announcing plans to close more than 200 stores. Karen, what do you make of these moves? Do they tempt you?
5: A lot of interesting moves. I mean the one that stood out the most was the Dillard move, which was gigantic. There was a Deutsche Bank who took it from a sell to a hold, took the price target from 31 to 60. Thought that was sort of interesting. Uh, then, you know, Dillard's though has a gigantic short interest. I think it's something in the 90s. I was curious to find can you borrow it? You can. But I think it's uh, 21% um, to borrow. So, Mm -hmm. you know, things really got to go your way. So that's one. Another one that was really interesting to me is Bed, Bath & Beyond, which I have sort of been following from afar, unfortunately not long. But talking to Jeff Mackey on this, he's an outstanding retail investor, and he really believed in the turnaround. They've done some great things. They've really rationalized their store base. Even he, who's loved the story, said, i got to take some off the table. Big short interest here as well, 67 percent. So I don't know if all of it is that dynamic, because there really wasn't any fundamental news. That doesn't make me really excited to jump on board, when, especially with this. I mean, the, it's, it's the deep end of the water. It's the stock plus the long-short dynamic.
2: Uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, it was uh, the highest close since, I believe, September of 2017. Is this the equivalent, in light of the, uh, the notion that there's stimulus checks coming, consumers love more money to spend, the big um, successful good executors within retail have already run up and, and are sitting at record highs pretty much. Uh, the dash for trash in retail, is that what we're seeing here, Tim?
6: Well, I mean, you know, Dillard's makes my Macy's look pretty darn good. So, if we're back to you know, outside a guy buying the scented candles, we talk about his demand profile. I, you know, I don't. This is this is. There's been a lot of this across retail. Um, and and when I think about the next round of stimulus checks, I would much rather own Target. Uh, but more more to the point, I'd rather own Walmart. Uh, and as we talk about also the beneficiaries for e-commerce, um, Walmart's picking up market share, and we know that they're. Uh, a long way to closing the gap on Amazon. And that's the reason you want to own it. So the reason why that multiple is re-rating because they're, they're, they're stealing most of the business, I think, from from a lot of the other big box staples guys on food to get people into their store ordering from Walmart Plus, And then the rest uh, is where they're taking market share.
2: Yeah. Uh, Guy, do you want to comment to Tim? Tim said that your scented candles, you, you buy them from Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs>
4: Well, it's, you know, since he brought it up, I used to buy them at Henry Bendel, which had a fabulous store, obviously, in New York City, and they had a great little store as well in the Short Hills Mall. And it's their candles candle. were spectacular. No 20%
2: they, they off coupons at well Henry Bendel's, that's for sure.
4: Well yeah. worth it. <laughs> You know, then I've moved down to the Joe Malone uh, candles, which are also extraordinary. So if you really want to go down the Scented Candle, I could can play with anybody. What I will say, though, in terms of stocks... You know we play around with this, but Williams Sonoma continues to go higher. Restoration Hardware, absolutely, I agree with Tim on Walmart, and you throw Home Depot on the back of it. And oh, by the way, Dollar Gen, which has come off recently, I think it's still a buy at these levels. So there are some retailers that are figuring this out.
2: All right, coming up. An options explosion. We'll take you inside the record surge in trading activity and how you can find the next big move in later. Fueling up on big gains forward driving to a two and a half year high today. But is it time to pump the brakes on this rally? We'll debate that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. It is official. 2020 was the biggest year for options trading in history and it wasn't even close. New data released today by the FIA, an organization that tracks derivatives markets worldwide, says more than 21 billion contracts changed hands last year. That is an increase of almost 40 percent from 2019. And Our next guest says you can expect the options explosion to continue in 2021, but it might look a little different. Credit Suisse Chief Equity Derivatives Strategist Mandy Shu joins us on the phone. Mandy, great to speak with you. Hey, Melissa, great to be here. You're already seeing the change happening in the early weeks of 2021. What are you seeing in terms of uh, positioning in, in in the rotational trade that we've seen in stocks?
9: Yeah, sure. So I would say, you know, specifically in the options market, there's definitely been a change in tone and a change in the sectors and the names that people are most interested and active in. So last year, for most of last year, I would say up until November, um, you know, where, where we saw the most active um, option uh, volumes were all concentrated in the tech names, right? Everyone was very bullish uh, on tech. But since the election, and more specifically, since, you know, the vaccine news came out, we've seen a big rotation into the value cyclical, the beaten down sectors, such as, you know, financials, energy, industrial, uh, etc. And I would say part of that is obviously due to the fundamentals, you know, shifting. The fact that we now have you know a big stimulus bill coming, the now that we have you know vaccines being rolled out, but also part of it is also driven by uh, positioning and the fact that among institutional investors, uh, people are still overweight tech and underweight the value cyclical name. So where they're going to play catch up is in the derivative market through buying of upside calls in these, you know, beaten down sectors to play a further rotation uh, this year.
2: Are you seeing evidence in, in the activity you see, Mandy, that institutional investors are remaining long and overweight technology and using options um, to hedge? Uh, not so much to hedge. So I would say sorry. Like,
9: yeah, yeah. So on the hedging side, it's actually been fairly quiet. Um, and I will say, you know, on the positioning side, people have been trimming their positions especially their overweight position in tech, right? So it's no longer as big of an overweight as it was, for example, in August, September last year. Uh, but that's been slow, right? So I would say still positioning is relatively more overweight tech and underweight the cyclical sector. So people are using options to adjust kind of their portfolio exposure uh, more quickly than you know un- uh, adjusting the underlying holdings. That's why we're seeing this pickup in options volume, particularly in the value and the cyclical sectors, in response to you know changing news and in response to changing fundamentals.
7: Uh, hey, Mandy, it's Dan. Thanks for joining us here. You know, you just mentioned those 2020 volumes up close to 40% year over year. We're talking a lot about institutions that are kind of making big bets. About the pandemic and, and and the groups that have been the hardest hit, but let me ask you this about retail. I mean, I, I think that retail percentage of the volume is probably the largest that it's ever been, and just the the sheer numbers are massive. And, and I worry that the on ramp, whether it be Robinhood and, and you know and these people really not knowing what they're trading, does that concern you at all?
9: Yeah, no. The retail activity has been, I would probably say, the number one story in the options market over the past year. Um, and you can see you know, the retail footprint a couple ways. One is obviously through the volume data, but even more specifically, if you break down the volume data in, in terms of where we're seeing the strongest growth, what stands out to me is that right now, over half of all option daily volume um, is concentrated in options with expiries of two weeks or less. So Extremely short dated options and that's typically a hallmark of retail activity because what we see from that community is typically you know buying short dated upside calls uh, as a way to lever up you know their their views so certainly you know I would agree with you that retail has been a big story now in terms of kind of implications for the market we are definitely seeing implications in the volatility market with you know upside calls trading extremely Extremely rich, um, And what I would say is, you know, what we've seen in terms of change of behavior from the institutional community as, you know, in response to the retail activity, is we're seeing a lot more uh, overriding uh, at, at the institutional level. So, mm-hmm. you know, investors coming in to sell calls on top of their core holdings as a way to take advantage of the extreme richness of those upside calls that's been driven, you know, driven up so high due to the retail demand.
2: Mandy, great to speak with you. Thank you. Great. Mandy Zhu of Credit Suisse. Uh, Karen, you use options. Have you been using options even more? You sold some calls today, in fact, speaking of selling calls. Today,
5: yes, I did, doing exactly what Mandy said. I mean, you know, I've talked a lot about Alphabet being my biggest position. It's up a lot in a very short amount of time. I sold some out of the money call, February calls that uh, they expire after earnings. So they have all that vol for earnings. And the embedded ball was very high, and I just, I don't want to sell stock and pay a big tax bill, but I do, it's getting a little bit frothy, so uh, I did exactly what she said, sold some out-of-the-money calls against my long position in Alphabet. All right.
2: For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, shares of Ford driving to multi-year highs today, but can the stock keep its foot on the gas? Or should investors pump the brakes? We'll bring you the trade in at the top of the hour. Jim is talking to the CEO of Weedmaps, the Yelp of cannabis, about what the new administration means for his company. You don't want to miss that exclusive interview only on Mad Money. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Ford topping the tape today. The stock driving to its highest level in two and a half years, and it is on pace for its best week since June. Analysts at Barclays making positive comments today on Ford's restructuring plan and product time uh, pipeline. Uh, Tim, you flagged this. You find this interesting? Well,
6: I do. I do. The the story with Ford has also been uh, similar to the GM story of uh, getting rid of unprofitable businesses, closing European plants, or at least scuttling a lot of those operations. It's also been one of their, their credit arm uh, and what the health was there. But but look, the demand for their EV portfolio, we've talked about it, Dan has highlighted. In fact, I think it, Dan will be first online for the new Mach uh, Mustang and possibly the Bronco as well. I mean, there, there's a lot of cool back in a Ford, but there's a lot of EV, EV back in this story. But in terms of the American automakers and their participation in this resurgence, Ford and a cleaned up balance sheet is part of that story.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of similar in that GM and its re-rating involved looking at parts of the business that were undervalued relative to other companies that are publicly traded. And Ford has sort of the same issue, Dan, when it comes to the EV portfolio. And by the way, it's investment in Rivian.
7: That's right. I mean, we talked about this the other night, and I think, you know, Tim kind of summed it up there. But, like, if you believe that Tesla deserves the market cap that it has at the valuation that it does for the market share that they have, and then you think of... Ford and GM, which sell over $100 billion worth of cars um, each year, and they are moving hard into EVs, and they have some great brands to leverage off of, then these companies need to be re-rated. It's just that simple, or there's just going to be some sort of mean reversion in some way, shape, or form. Probably not a great pairs trade, but Ford's up 30% for a reason, because I think a lot of investors who believe in the EV story are kind of full up in Tesla. All right.
2: Up next, we've got your final trades. Time for the final trade time to go around the horn. Tim.
6: Retail stories, if you're looking for them, don't
2: go any farther than
6: Walmart. As far as I'm concerned, a re-rating story, you can get best of breed. You don't have to dash for trash.
2: Karen.
5: Yeah, well, we sort of talked about it in the F block, but it was selling Google calls out of the money. These were 2000s of February after earnings. I really love the name long term, but it doesn't always trade at exactly the right value. It just feels a little bit frothy to me. Too. So it call.
2: Dan.
7: Yeah, Intel traded nearly 64 after those earnings came out. It's down about 60. If you see a gap fill towards the mid-50s, that's where I think you buy it.
2: Guy.
4: Getting a lot of play on Twitter on the candle stuff,
7: now I'm just saying. So, Maybe we should go into business
4: play. together. Anyway. <laughs> FedEx. <laughs> sold off enough <and> up. FDX. <laughs>
2: Thanks for watching. Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.